say, I don't know about you, but pap smear changes happen so frequently, I feel like, and I can't keep up anymore now that my primary practice is really just in obstetrics. Yeah, and it's really difficult, I think, even for our residents to remember everything, especially with Creogs looming overhead in, towards the end of January. So what methods do you have of making sure that they and us keep up to date? Well, if I need a quick reference, one place that I can know I can turn to is the OBG project because I can hold this in my special library on my bookshelf and say, aha, this is the most recent thing that I know that they have read and up to date and a nice bullet pointed summary. And then they've even got an alert on their homepage right now to get you signed up to be able to know as soon as the newest recommendations coming from the USPSTF on cervical cancer screening get dropped. Um, That's pretty, pretty neat that you can be right on the front lines of brand new changes in patient care. Yeah, absolutely. And even more for residents, uh, they have the resident core curriculum. So you can go ahead and sign up for that um, and basically look at comprehensive OBGYN resources for your education. And of course, now the OBG project also has an app so you can access this even more quickly and easily from your phone. Get signed up for all of the great things that come from the OBG project, including OBG First, absolutely free for residents all four years on our website, creagsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Creogs over coffee. So today we have with us back a wonderful guest. We have back with us Dr. Edward Kim. So Dr. Kim is a third-year urogynecology fellow at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and today he's going to be talking to us about pessaries. Welcome, Dr. Kim. Thank you for having me again, guys. Yeah, thank you for coming back and to talk with us. What I feel like for many residents is a mysterious subject. Um, What are our learning objectives ultimately today? Yeah, so um, we want to kind of talk about what pessaries are and a really brief overview of um, their history and what we use them for now. Learn the basic evaluation and management of a pessary and also finally really be empowered to discuss and offer to patients. Awesome. So two and a half years into my maternal fetal medicine fellowship, Ed, I like barely remember what pessaries are. So can you give us like a brief overview? Like what is a pessary? What are the different types of pessaries? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The only preface that I would have is that, you know, we're going to talk about the non-obstetrical uses of pessaries because I know that, you know, in the OB world and MFMs, sometimes there's pessary for more obstetrical indications. We're really going to talk about the pelvic floor dysfunction um, in this talk and what we use them for um, in terms of the prolapse and the urinary incontinence. So as we know, in terms of epidemiology, a pelvic organ prolapse or POP and stress urinary incontinence or SUI are a pretty common problem that affect um, millions of women in the world. A pessary is a support device that is placed vaginally that we pretty much know, um, and it can be used to treat symptoms of POP, SUI, or sometimes actually both. Pessaries are generally cost-effective, it's pretty well-tolerated, and really safe, and can be used to help avoid surgery. For POP, up to 90% of patients report relief of symptoms. Um, So the POP symptoms usually are like pressure and bulge. And so 
if you put the pessary um, inside, basically the pressure and the bulge goes away. And for SUI, about half of the patients report improvement in urinary symptoms. And actually, pretty interesting is the historical aspect of pessary is that the first use of pessary for reduction of pelvic organ prolapse was actually described by Hippocrates. He put a halved pomegranate that was soaked in wine into the vagina to help reduce the prolapse. So we don't use pomegranates soaked in wine anymore. Um, but the most modern use of pessary was really developed here at Penn for me and Faye. Um, in, uh, in 1860, Dr. Hugh Lennox Hodge, uh, he was an OBGYN faculty here at the University of Pennsylvania. He developed a, uh, with the vulcanized rubber that was developed around the same time, created a pessary that was more shaped anatomically. So not a pomegranate, but more of like a oval ring shaped disc. So of course, nowadays, most pessaries are made of very soft, flexible silicone and thus considered non-allergenic. And it comes in many different shapes and sizes as um, Faye kind of alluded to. Um, that said, while there are multiple types, a survey of urogynecologists by OGS, our kind of the society, show that most commonly used pessaries are actually ring, gellhorn, and, and donuts. Um, and if you're really wondering in your head what those uh, look like, um, I'll kind of describe in words what they look like. But, you know, please feel free to look up online or Google image search what the pessaries look like. The ring pessaries are go-to in our practice. In terms of a ring pessary, there are a few main types. So ring without support. So that's just a ring, silicone ring, ring with support. So it kind of looks like a mini Frisbee, like very small Frisbee. So there is a ring around it, but there is like a thin membrane in the middle. So it kind of looks like a Frisbee ring without support with a knob. So it's just like a ring with a little knob um, at the top. So that is really for stress urinary incontinence because that knob is supposed to sit under the um, urethra and help kind of that reflex of coughing, laughing, sneezing. And so that kind of pinches off the urethra and helps with SUI. And there is a ring with support and a knob that is supposed to address uh, the POP and SUI symptoms. So it's a ring, basically has a membrane in the middle, so like a Frisbee, but has a knob on it. So it's supposed to block any pelvic organs from prolapsing, but also has a knob to kind of pinch off the urethra. And rings can be removed by patients fairly easily. So a lot of patients who have the dexterity and the capacity to do so and feel comfortable with that actually do manage on their own. A gellhorn, um, it's really used in more severe prolapse cases because it's a little more uncomfortable for patients, especially in the initial placement. And also it's really very hard for patients to remove on their own. It has a stem and a concave disc, and it kind of looks like a pacifier, honestly. The concave disc sits below the vaginal apex or the cervix, if you have a uterus, um, it creates somewhat of a suction. Uh, the stem sits posteriorly, kind of all, like almost against the rectum and prevents the pessary from flipping around or just moving around in general. They're, um, as you can imagine, a little more difficult to place and the patients sometimes report, you know, kind of a little bit of discomfort with the initial placement. Um, for removal, a provider really needs to grasp the stem. So like um, the stem of the, Gellhorn with the with their fingers or ring forceps really gently wiggle it and break the suction and allow for removal. And like I said, because it's a little bit harder to place, um, you know, sometimes it's not our go-to. However, for severe prolapse cases, um, it's something that we do go to. Uh, a donut, as the name implies, looks like a really a mini donut, and it achieves its function by really being a space occupier in the vagina. Um, it really, again, works for more severe prolapse, and as you can imagine, uh, more difficult for patients to remove on their own. 
And in the interest of time, I won't go into the details, but there are other types like cubes and inflatable pessary and et cetera. And there is a little more movement towards uh, more customized uh, pessaries, uh, depending on the individual shape of the vagina. So those are things that are coming along the pipeline. However, do you know that those three are kind of the most common things that you'll hear talked about? It's a super helpful overview of pessaries. And I think much more knowledge now of a pessary than I ever had before. So thank you for that. Um, but let's kind of move to the next piece. So when you are seeing a patient in the office and you're doing the classic urogyne talk of like, you know, conservative things, pelvic floor PT, pessary surgery, um, where does pessary fit into that? How do you counsel patients or what are the um, sort of indications that you look for for placing a pessary? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So patients with symptomatic POP or SUI, and they really want to avoid surgery for a multitude of reasons. So, you know, say, uh, you know, the pandemic, um, or their just social life, or they're poor candidates for surgery, they have other medical issues, or they desire further childbearing, because once you have reconstructive surgery done, um, it's not that it's a contraindication to having more um, babies, but it's more of it can actually kind of reverse the this, the procedure, so or current pregnancy or within twelve months postpartum. Um, so for the MFMs, um, you know, on the panel. So basically, what that means is that some um, patients after delivery, um, as you know, have um, pretty minor or sometimes significant prolapse, or they have SUI. Um, and when they come to our clinic and see, it's really bothersome for them. We talk to them about these options because while it's not um, sometimes not very. Um, uh, acceptable for them to wear a pessary at the age of 20, 30, or however old they are. Sometimes it is something that's necessary um, so that they have time for their pelvic floor to recover. So those are the patients that we usually talk to pessaries about. And so um, especially in our practice, that's more, you know, academic, we really approach and offer it to everyone. The only contraindications would be active pelvic infection, which kind of makes sense. Um, latex allergy. So as I mentioned, the pessaries are silicone, but some of the inflatable, inflatable ones actually have some latex component to them. Um, and so if they have latex allergy and if they're really non-adherent to uh, care and follow-up. So for example, if someone has the cognitive or um, the deficits and they really can't maintain that, that's something that we would consider um, to be a self-contradication. Studies report a wide range of patient acceptance of pessary. So um, not everyone that we offer to actually accept it. Um, so studies, because of, depending on the methodology, it's about 42 to 100% acceptance in terms of when you offer it to them, they say, sure, it's something I would try. Patients who uh, decline tend to be younger, as I mentioned, with uh, postpartum patients, sexually active. Um, so it's not that the patients can't have sex with uh, pessaries. They usually have to remove them, especially, of course, you need to remove for the space occupying ones, nulliparous women or patients who have severe POP or SUI, they say, you know what, I don't think it's going to help. I just need surgery. But it also really depends on the counseling, which is why, you know, I say one of the object objectives for this uh, episode is that I want everyone to be a little more empowered to just offer it to patients or just know a little bit about it. So if they say, hey, you know, I have this problem, what do you think it should be done? A lot of the times when they come to our office, they say, you know, I really don't uh, remember getting much counseling or about the options. And I just want people to be able to say, hey, th there's a pessary option that's safe and non-surgical. Uh, maybe this 
it's something you can talk to whoever about. Um, and we actually use it as a bridge, even if patients say, I really want surgery, um, because of, you know, the surgery usually don't happen in a day, right? So we usually as a bridge sometimes for patients who prefer to kind of fix their symptoms for now. So I would say that's kind of how we counsel. And that's what we, in our minds, when, they, when we see patients in our clinic, say this is an indication and contraindications. That's really great, Ed. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how to place a pessary because I feel like in my residency clinic, you know, there was a lot of talk about folding something like a taco, but I still definitely don't feel comfortable. So how would you kind of help our listeners be a little bit more comfortable, especially in placing, you know, potentially that ring pessary? Yeah, absolutely. So placement actually does come with practice and an often involves trial and error. Um, or some of my faculty will kind of tell patients it's kind of like trying on clothes or shoes. Uh, sometimes you try one size and then you have to go up a size or down a size. So it really involves trial and error. We've actually, you know, in the literature studied um, if there are any identifiable uh, predictors. So depending on their general, hi general hiatus or their kind of total vaginal length, is there something that tells us that we can start at this size? But actually none of those have been really reliable as this is what you should start with. So it really depends on your practice. And so that's why we say, you know, to our listeners, you know, if you want to become more familiar with it, it really just trial and error. No one kind of starts their practice and say, hey, this is going to work for you every time. So we usually start with ring with support pessary. That's kind of the most common go-to. So like I said, you know, that has a ring and a little disc um, inside. So like a little membrane. So it's like a look, uh, mini Frisbee identifying the starting size. So like a three or a four or a five or whatever it is, again, comes with practice and also your pelvic exam of the patient. And you say, okay, this, this, you know, um, pelvis looks to be a little more elastic, has more capacity. So then you kind of think about what you would try. You would wet it with warm water first. Um, you could use things like lube or gel, but if you use too much, it actually can be really slippery and it can like, you know, flip out of your hands. It looks really not really professional for people. So warm and you know, what a warm warm water as as Faye said, you know, it's fold it like a taco is kind of how we talk about it. So fold it like a taco. And then you insert it um, and allow it to kind of resume its uh, disc shape inside you. Um, remember, it should not be painful. If the patient says ever to you, I had a pessary, try it on, or I, I got placed and it was painful, I couldn't walk around, that's the wrong size. It should never be painful. I always liken it to patients like wearing glasses or contact lens. Um, you know that it's there when you first start wearing them, but after a while, you just Notice, don't notice that it's there. It really just helps you and you shouldn't really notice it. It's a corrective device, right? So it should not be painful. Um, and so if you're, if they say this is painful, it's the wrong size. Then if they say, Hey, like, I don't feel anything. It's not painful. I can't even tell it's there. Or they say, yeah, I know it's there, but it's not uncomfortable. Then we have them Valsalvawa on the table. Oh, so by the way, I should mention that they're on dorsal lithotomy on the exam table at this time for the placement. And then we have them Valsalva. We say, hey, bear down like you're ha you know, pushing or having a bowel movement. It's okay to see that this come down with the Valsalva because everyone, everything should descend if you have Valsalva hard enough, as long as it doesn't really pop out or get expelled. Then if it doesn't pop out, we say, hey, why don't you go to the bathroom, um, ambulate around the exam room and whatnot, go to the toilet and try to Valsalva into the toilet. And we give them a toilet hat to kind of catch the pessary if it, you know, falls out. 
And if it's still in situ after Valsaba ambulating and it's not painful for them, we say you can go home with it. And so that's how you place a pessary. Again, you know, I would lie, I would be lying if I said, you know, we place it and then it just stays in put. You know, we have to sometimes change sizes. They say it's a little painful. And so it's trial and error and you'll get better with it. Placement of gellhorn donuts and other type of pessaries are a little different and may best be reserved by providers who have really more experience with them. But I do think that ring pessaries can be something that everyone can have in their toolbox and can certainly try for patients. All right. So maybe we're feeling more confident about putting a pessary in now, but I think the next big hurdle or obstacle for me as the practitioner is how exactly to counsel the patient about maintenance of the pessary, or do I need to bring them back to the office to remove the pessary periodically and look for myself? What is your formula for doing this? Yeah. So patients who really wish to do so and have the dexterity to maintain the pessaries on their own are really totally, we say, you're welcome to do that on your own. So they would just take it out and clean with warm soapy water. And as long as often as they want, but we usually say at least once a week, if they're unable to do so, then typically they come to the clinic every three to four months um, uh, for maintenance. So what that really means is that you're just going to take it out and clean it for them and then place it back. But after doing a public exam, a speculum exam to make sure that the the space occupyingness of the pessary didn't cause any uh, basically pressure ulcers. So you're looking for excoriations, any ulcers and abrasions. Um, and you're trying to make sure that there is nothing like that. And you paste, place it back. In our practice, um, you know, in bigger practices, we usually have our advanced practice, um, practice providers um, help us with the maintenance uh, every three to four months. Um, but you can certainly do that as a provider. Um, and I would say, that postmenopausal patients without contraindication for topical vaginal estrogen, we typically have them use it because, you know, um, atrophied vagina um, in postmenopausal state or even surgical menopause or patients who are menopausal for multitudes of reasons basically can have an increased risk of excoriation and abrasion from, again, the space occupying this of the uh, pessary. And so we usually have them use that as well. So in terms of maintenance, it's really not hard, I would say, um, but it really depends on, you know, if you have the infrastructure in place to help you. So do you have APPs who can help you with that? If you don't, you know, you can still definitely do that um, on your own as well. So the ring um, and all those kind of things are pretty easy to maintain. If you have a gellhorn or donut, if you're a provider who doesn't feel comfortable with it yet, um, then certainly something you can try to get better at, but it also um, makes sense to refer them to someone. Great. So, Ed, you started to mention some of those uh, complications like excoriations and abrasions. Can you talk a little bit more about some other complications that could arise with a pessary? Yeah, of course. And I think that's really important to talk to patients about that these complications are pretty uncommon. The most common complaints are increased or change in vaginal discharge or odor. Um, and you tell them that, you know, that's obviously pretty normal, but you also have to rule out for vaginitis and bacterial vaginosis if you if your clinical concern is um, kind of high for those uh, pathologies. And so those are really uh, next reasonable steps. But a lot of the times it's reassurance. But of course, if they uh, report vaginal bleeding, long after placement, because if they're postmenopausal, um, initial placement can have them spot a little bit. But if they, you know, say, hey, like it's been like a few days for a couple of weeks and I'm having kind of vaginal bleeding, then that's something that warrants um, exam in the office. 
spontaneous expulsion or difficulty avoiding a defecation or pain, it means that usually a different size or shape should be tried. And so in our practice, we place it, we say, call us if anything happens. If it falls out, put it into like a Ziploc bag and bring it back to the clinic and we can try a different size and things like that. And these are totally autocleavable. So we usually have them bring it back to the office. So again, these are not really complications per se, but more of like common complaints. Actual uh, complications can happen when pessaries have been left in situ and neglected for a prolonged period of time. So sometimes we get called into the SICU or the MICU uh, for usually um, kind of elderly patients who uh, basically either forgot or neglected their pessary was there and then they're really admitted for another reason but somehow it's it comes up that you know they have a pessary in place and we're called for a removal or a kind of um consultation of what to do with them if they actually have been in there for a long time we actually wouldn't touch it necessarily we have to kind of um, ascertain that um, how long it's been placed and because it can actually be a pretty embedded if especially they're postmenopausal and have vaginal atrophy the neglected pessary can really embed and sometimes they actually require removal and under general anesthesia to make sure that um, there is not going to be bleeding that's encountered or in worst cases evisceration and so those are pretty um you know uh, uncommon complications or rare should i say um so we would say those are not really likely and that's why we say one of the soft contraindications for us is you know do they have the capacity to kind of maintain or just not forget that the pessary is there but like i said pretty safe um and pretty well tolerated all right Faye. i don't know about you but i'm feeling pretty confident now in putting a pessary and maybe open up a side practice <laughs> there we go yeah as long as we don't do anything with tacos and uh, pomegranates yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, Ed, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Do you want to give us like a quick recap or final word? Yeah. So I guess in summary, I would say the pessaries are safe, relatively effective, and if fitted properly, well-tolerated non-surgical management options for POP and SUI. So I really encourage everyone, you know, all the listeners to be able to start the discussion with patients with symptomatic POP and SUI, at least start the discussion. And so that patients know that, hey, I um, don't have to always get surgery or try all these things. There are non-surgical and pretty safe things I can try before I jump to that. So I just say, you know, I want everyone to be empowered to be able to offer and start the discussion. Well, great, Ed. Thank you again for coming on to our podcast and giving us uh, another great episode. All right, everyone. So this brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CraigsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CraigsOverCoffee. And if you want to donate to the show, you can go into our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CraigsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and that Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CraigsOverCoffee.com. And if you have questions for us, corrections for a show, or have a suggestion, go ahead and email us, CraigsOverCoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>